Genesis chapter 6. We're going to talk about Noah and the flood. Uh, there's three chapters here that uh, is required to get the story of Noah and the flood. So I'm just going to read the very beginning of it and uh, kind of whet our appetite. And then as I begin talking through, I'll be referencing some of the other chapters. So you probably want to keep your Bibles open and uh, just kind of try to jump around there in chapters 7 and 8 to some of those places when I reference them. But let's start reading Genesis chapter 6. Let's start reading in verse number 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten. You shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Father God, we're thankful for your word, and I pray as we stop right there that, uh, Lord, the rest of the story we're able to make clear as we go along. But uh, I pray you'd speak to us from this, such an important, wonderful, amazing passage of Scripture. May we believe it, Lord. Forgive us if we struggle with that. Help us, Lord, to listen to your word above all other things, to listen to you above all other things. May we not be as Adam and Eve who listened to somebody else rather than to you. Rather, may we listen here and say, this is the word of God. This happened. This is real. May we be changed by it. So bless as we look at it. Give me wisdom. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to say everything I should say and not another word more. Help me, Father, to be clear and accurate and practical. I just pray, Lord, there would be results from this, your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to look at this in three ways if we have time. I may leave this last one off, but... Let's see if we have time to look at, first of all, what happened, secondly, why it happened, and then thirdly, I'd like to talk about some of the reasons why we can believe it and maybe answer a couple of objections that people have uh, to this story. But first of all, what happened? 
And, of course, it all starts there at the beginning of chapter 6 with the realization that mankind in and of itself is evil. We talked last week about sin entering the scene in Genesis chapter 3. And once sin entered the scene, mankind slid ever deeper and ever further into the slavery of sin. Then we come to chapter 6, and we find God's patience with that state of affairs has come to an end. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 3. Here was a pronouncement that God's patience had limits, that judgment for sin was a certainty. We oftentimes take that verse and apply it in a general way uh, about the patience of God. But it had a very specific meaning here. What God was saying is in 120 years I'm going to judge sin. And of course 120 years later is when the flood would come. And so he told Noah, build an ark, because that judgment that is going to come in 120 years is going to be rain. It's going to be a flood. Make yourself an ark. I am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And so the first thing that happened here is a pronouncement of future judgment. And the second thing that happened here is a pronouncement of future protection. Not for everybody, but for Noah. And for his family, for believers, he told Noah, build an ark. And so Noah obeyed, and for 120 years he worked on building that ark. Peter, in Second uh, Peter, I believe it is, refers to him as a preacher of righteousness. And so uh, I always like to picture Noah at this point for these 120 years. He's not only uh, pretending or, or, or being a carpenter and slapping wood together and all that sort of thing, but I think he had a, uh, if I could use a silly illustration, a hammer in one hand and a Bible in the other. He was preaching... All the time that he was building, but he was building an ark. It took him 120 years. In Genesis chapter 6 and verses 14 and following, we have a description of the ark that God told Noah to build, and which he did build. It was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's possible. By the way, this, this room right here is 20 feet high, if that gives you a little bit of context as to how high that would have been, 45 feet high. It's possible those dimensions are subject to a little interpretation because they're based on what we understand of a cubit. The Bible says that it was uh, you know, measured in cubits. And uh, normally uh, the standard cubit is measured from the tip of a man's longest finger to his elbow, and it's usually averaged at about 18 inches. And with that, that's how we get those numbers. There are other cubits that have been used down through history. The Egyptians used what I believe was referred to as the royal cubit, which I think was 21 inches. And so if our calculations were based on that, the ark would be even bigger. But most people... Say it's the 18-inch cubit, and so you get 450 by 75 by 45. It would have therefore had a displacement of 43,300 tons. It had three decks, verse 16. It had rooms in it, verse 14. Not only to house the animals and provide for storage requirements, but also structural support. Those rooms would have helped to hold the thing together. It had a window, perhaps running all the way around the top level, verse number 16. That's, that's a difficult Thing to interpret and understand exactly what that means, but it could have just been a single window, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. One little tiny window for that huge thing. There were animals in there, remember. Uh, I think we needed some ventilation. I think it probably would have gone all the way around, and a lot of times you see that's the way it is drawn. It had a door, verse 16, one door. It was to be made of gopher wood, verse 14, which some interpret to be cypress, although we can't be sure. We don't really know what gopher wood means. And it was to be covered with pitch, both inside and outside, 
to make it waterproof. It's interesting that in all the flood narratives that exist, and I'm going to mention this if we have time when we get to the end, there are so many flood narratives down through the cultures of the world and all around the world. In all of the ones that exist, for, for example, the, the Babylonian Gilgamesh would be one of them. Uh, in all of them, the Bible is the only account that really describes a vessel that would have been seaworthy. This thing would have worked. We would have had no trouble getting on it and taking it around the world. It was, it was a, a good design of a boat. We often think of it as a boat, and I just use the word boat. Artist depictions often show it looking like a boat. The uh, Ark Encounter in Kentucky uh, has it uh, designed like a boat with a curved bow and stern and all that kind of stuff. But the word is ark. It's not boat. And the word ark means box or chest or coffin. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's uh, interpreted that way. And so it was most likely a rectangular-shaped box, not the shape of modern boats. Testing has been done on that design. Uh, and it's extremely stable in the water. It's almost impossible to capsize. And so Noah built this. And when the time came, Noah and his family and the animals God had told him to load on the ark entered the ark. If we notice in uh, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 15, Noah didn't have to go looking for the animals. They came to him. God brought them. And then God shut the door. Chapter 7, verse 16. You ought to underline that one in your Bible. That's a glorious, glorious verse. God shut the door. Time was up. Those who were in the ark were shut in and could not get out. Those who were outside the ark were shut out and could not get in. The door was shut. And then it rained. Remember that little old gospel song? My, didn't it rain? It rained. And it rained. And it rained for 40 days. And for 40 nights. It's important to note that before this, we don't, we don't think it had ever rained on the earth. The Bible says back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5 that it had not rained at that point. There's no indication between there and here that that had changed. And so at this particular point, it had not rained on the earth. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because that makes Noah's obedience so much more wonderful. It's like Abraham. When, when God told Abraham to go out, he says he told him to go out into a land. He did not know where he was going. But he obeyed. And that was what was wonderful. And here's Noah. It's going to rain, Noah. What's rain? Don't worry about that. Just build an ark. He didn't even know what it was. He'd never seen a raindrop in his life. And yet he continued to do it. Some people theorize that there was a large cloud cover in the atmosphere. It's, I think, called the canopy theory. Some people believe that the, the earth was like a giant terrarium at that time, based on the fact that in Genesis chapter 2 it says a mist went up from the ground and watered the earth. And so the earth was, uh, I guess at that point, kind of like a terrarium. And so when God released that rain, imagine how much water would have been up there. And then there was another aspect to it. There was the rain that, or the water that came up from above. It says, on the other hand, there were corresponding gigantic upheavals and shiftings of the earth crust, which caused the ocean's floors to rise and break up their reservoirs of subterranean waters. At least that's the way one person put it. It rained so much, and so much water blew up from underneath that the earth was entirely covered this was a global flood. Everything was covered. Even the highest mountains, verse number 20 says. Chapter 7, I think. This cataclysmic event would have changed the whole topography of the earth. Sometimes we read about the Garden of Eden. It mentions four different rivers there. And we think, oh, we could figure out where the Garden of Eden is. No, you can't, because the flood wiped everything out. And the whole topography of the earth was changed. 
I know that there's always going to be some who are going to say, well, I can believe there was a flood, that it had to be local. could not have been global. To believe that the entire world was covered with water, come on, preacher, you can't possibly believe that. But, but now listen, if we're intellectually honest, we have to believe that. Because that's what the Bible says. I don't know how else you interpret, I think it's chapter 7, verses 19 through 24, uh, unless it's global. It says there in verse 21, all flesh died, every creeping thing, every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, all that was on the dry land, verse number 22, all living things, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark were saved. I've said to you before, all means all, and that's all all means. How else do we interpret that? Everything. And then finally we read in chapter 8 that the rain stopped, the waters receded, and the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, chapter 8, verse number 4, probably in what is today modern-day Turkey. There are several, quite a few actually, who claim to have seen the ark, who claim to know where it is, but the exact location has never been proven and is not really known. The final, thing, the final thing I'll mention about Noah, and there's so much more we could talk about here, we're just kind of hitting the high points. But the final thing I'll mention about him is that upon exiting the ark, his first order of business was worshiping God. Chapter 8, verse number 20. So that's just a high level of look at what happened. Let's ask ourselves why it happened. Why did it happen? Why was there a flood? Well, and I think there's two things that we can, we can draw out of this passage. I think the first thing would be this. Sin had to be judged. Sin had to be judged. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5 is a horrible verse. Look at that verse. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was their state. Only evil continually. And interestingly, that state was also the state after the flood. Uh, chapter 8 and verse number 21. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, everybody was gone now except Noah and his family. And yet God said that is still the case. Paul says that, the, that we're still in that state. Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. When God looks at man, that's you and me, he sees hearts that are only evil and only evil all the time. That's a horrendous verse. It's a terrible verse. In and of ourselves, we are totally depraved, and we are continually so. And I can imagine some of you are sitting here this morning saying, Nah, come on, preacher, that's not me. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't drink. I don't steal. I'm as good as the best per- as, as, as the next person. I really try to be good. I, I'm certain that's not me. A lot of people. Struggle with that. There's even a Luke Bryan country song that's getting a lot of play right now. Let me read you a few of the words. He says, I believe most people are good. Most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. 
I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. You notice I got a little country accent there as I was doing that. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. You're on the country station. You're going to hear that about every 30 seconds because it's playing a lot right now. And it's a nice sentiment, isn't it? Isn't that nice and warm and fuzzy? There's just one problem with it. It's a sneaking lie. It's not true. If you measure yourself against most people, then you might get away with that kind of thinking. But if you measure yourself against God and the standard that he has set forth, and that's the only one he's interested in, you're not good. You're in Genesis 6-5. You're only evil. And you're only evil continually. Thank God for Jesus. Jesus, who is the only hope we have. Jesus, who is the only solution to this. Jesus, who is our ark. Thank God for Jesus. You see, the older I get in my faith, the more I see the truth of it in me. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah said it is. I, like Paul, am made more aware every day that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. I, I am sinning even when I'm praying. Anybody else besides me ever be in the midst of prayer? I mean, you're in one of the most spiritual pursuits you could possibly be in. In the midst of prayer, something comes into your brain. Something disgusting and wicked and sinful comes into your brain. I, I, I'm sinning when I'm preaching. I've probably sinned 50 times up here in the last 15 minutes. I'm sinning when I read the Bible. And so are you. You see, we are, we are Paul in Romans chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body? We are only evil, and we are only evil continually, and such depraved and sin-blackened hearts could never dwell in the presence of God. Such sin had to be judged and done away with, hence there had to be a flood. In Sunday school, the class that I'm teaching in Sunday school right now, we're looking into some principles that help us to teach the Bible accurately and interpret the Bible. And there's a principle called the principle of illustrative mention. Let me just read what uh, one person says about that. It is that principle by which God exhibits by illustrations of judgment his displeasure at various forms of sin and disobedience. He speaks by way of judgment for violation of his command. He gives a decisive sign of hatred for sin and then is silent for a long time. If God visited every sin with deserved punishment as soon as the law was broken, the human race would soon become extinct. God shows us what he thinks about sin with one decisive illustration. We see an example of that in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Ghost, struck dead just like that. Thank God not everybody who uh, lies to the Holy Ghost is immediately struck dead. It was an illustration of what God thought about it, given one time, so that we'll know. Uh, Achan in Joshua chapter 7. You know what Achan did? He coveted. Anybody in here ever do that? He coveted something that wasn't his. He wanted a goodly Babylonian garment and a wedge of silver, and he desired it and took it and hid it and was stoned to death as a result. Thank God that everybody who covets, if everybody in this room who coveted sometime in their life was going to be stoned to death, we would, as Forrest Gump said, run out of rocks. I think this is an example of this. I think what was happening here was uh, an illustration of God's feeling towards sin. Sin 
must be judged. And so that describes why there was a need for a flood. What it doesn't describe is why there was a need for an ark. Why was there a need for an ark? And that brings me to the second thought. Sin had to be judged. The second thought, though, is the righteous had to be saved. The righteous had to be saved. Whereas Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5 gives us a terrible description of what is in man's heart, Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 8 gives us a glorious picture of what is in God's heart. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first mention of grace in your Bible. Some translations translate that word favor, but the meaning is the same, grace. We've seen grace. We saw grace uh, in God's tender dealing with Adam and Eve after their fall. Now, we didn't read about it, but if you read in uh, chapter 4 about Cain and others, uh, you would see that there was examples of it. But this is the first time it's mentioned. This is the first time we see the word used and Noah found it. He didn't find grace because his heart was somehow less sinful than others. His heart was just as black. We've already seen that. But he found grace, God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And based on everything else we know that we've already seen in Genesis, he found it because he was a believer. Just as Adam believed in that promise of a redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, so too Noah was looking forward to that same future redeemer. One of my favorite commentators suggests this. He said, regardless of the extent of the evil, there is always opportunity to find God's grace where alone it can be found, namely in the work of Jesus Christ in dying for his people's salvation. Noah may not have known the details about that future work of Christ, but he looked forward to the deliverer and ordered his life accordingly. Noah was a believer. He goes on, he makes another statement. He says, notice that Noah did not earn grace. Noah found grace. He was willing to accept God's judgment on his sinful and rebellious nature and place his hope in the Savior. It is the same today. We have no claim on God. We have not earned anything but his just wrath and our eventual destruction, but we can find grace in Christ. Oftentimes I think people think they can make a deal with God. I think people think they can say something like this, you know, Lord, I'll believe in you if you'll forgive my sin. Like we can deal with him. Or maybe we're going through something difficult in our life and we've never trusted Christ, but we come to a place where we say, God, if you'll just take care of this one terrible problem in my life, I'll worship and serve you. Like we have any way to deal with God. We have nothing with which to make a deal. We're totally black of heart, devoid of righteousness. Isaiah said that even, of our, even our righteousnesses, our very best things that we could be, are filthy. That's the word he used, filthy rags. It's like the songwriter wrote, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I claim. So God could and did judge sin and sinners. That's the reason there was a flood. But God would not and could not condemn believers. And that's the reason there was an ark. So long as Noah, this believing man, walked the earth, God could not complete that judgment. He could not flood the earth and destroy everything there. That's an astonishing truth. That's a glorious truth. That makes me want to shout this morning. It's an amazing revelation of how safe and secure the believer in Jesus Christ is in this world and in eternity. We who are saved are safe, eternally safe, completely safe, protected forever uh, from any more judgment for sin. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. All you need to hear this. God would not and could not judge this world until Noah was saved. I think that's astonishing. So there had to be an ark. There had to be an ark because it was the only way. Abraham's nephew Lot is another wonderful example of this glorious truth. Lot was a believer, according to Peter in Second Peter chapter two and verse number seven. Lot lived in Sodom when God decided that he was going to destroy Sodom. There's an amazing thing that uh, the angels who were sent to destroy Sodom said to Lot. They were preparing to destroy it, but Lot was lingering behind. And Lot finally said, you know, I'd like to just escape to this one little city over here. Just let me go to that one city. They had told him, get out of the city. Get out. We're going to destroy it. And uh, so finally he said, I want to go to that one little city. And they said, okay, hurry. Escape there. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. I find that one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. I cannot judge this sin until you, Lot, are safe. God's judgment could not fall until believing Lot was safe, and God's judgment could not fall until believing Noah was in the ark. And there's so much more we could say about that, but I'm going to stop. Hopefully it's sufficient. Man's wickedness was why there was a flood. The grace of God toward believing Noah was why there was an ark. That ark is a wonderful type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Noah was saved from the wrath of God's judgment because he was in the ark. He was shut up in the ark. Notice, I mentioned it earlier, God's the one who shut that door. He could not have gotten out of that ark if he'd wanted to because God had shut him in. He was as safe as safe can be because God made it so. And Jesus is our ark. If you're in Jesus, you are safe from hell. On the other hand, if you don't get into that ark before the judgment falls, and if you don't trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, there is no hope for you. So that's what happened. That's why it happened. Let me just mention a couple of things about why we can believe it. A few reasons why I think it's believable and we as Christians need to. Because I know some people dismiss the creation stories as a myth, and I know also some people dismiss this story as a myth. But here's the deal. If you don't believe this, you're calling Jesus Christ a liar because Jesus believed this. Uh, where is it here? It's in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 37. Jesus said, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus mentioned every aspect of the story right there in that passage. So if we don't believe it, we're calling Jesus a liar. So we must. We must believe it. Another reason I think we can believe it is because it's, it's an amazing truth that this story doesn't only exist in our Bible. This story exists everywhere. There is a book that I just ordered because I came across references to it as I was studying. It was written by Tim LaHaye and John Morris. It's out of print now, but I found a used copy of it I ordered. 
It's called the Ark on Ararat. And in that book, they list 213 different flood traditions from all around the world. 213 different people groups all around the globe that have some sort of a flood tradition. And uh, there's all kinds of similarities. 88% of them, there is a favored family. 70%, there is survival due to a boat. 95%, the sole cause of the catastrophe is a flood. 66%, the disaster is due to man's wickedness. 67%, animals are also saved. 57%, the survivors end up on a mountain. And in smaller percentages, birds are sent out, a rainbow is mentioned, and eight persons specifically are saved. How do you account for that? How can you possibly account for that? There's only one way you can account for that. That is the fact that when Noah got out of the ark, his, his family uh, repopulated the earth, and that story went with him all over the globe. And so even if you don't want to believe Jesus, you can believe the fact that there is all kinds of other external evidence like that. And then I can hear some who are sitting here saying, all right, preacher, this is all fine and good. But you know what? There is no way in the world all those animals fit on that ark. I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands, but I know there's some of them in this room right now. They're saying that's just impossible. All those animals. I mean, the dinosaurs had to have even been on the ark. So how in the world did they all fit on that ark? Well, let me, let me read a little bit more from this, the ark on Ararat. They, they quote from a fellow by the name of Ernst Meyer, who's one of America's leading taxonomists. And he tells how many animals there are that have been cataloged. He lists mammals and uh, birds and reptiles and amphibians and fishes and tunicates and echinoderms and arthropods and mollusks and worms and coelenterates and sponges and protozoans. And he comes up with a total number of animals that exist, total number of kinds of animals that exist of 1,072,300. And if that's the number, then we probably have to say, yeah, that'd be pretty impossible for all of them to fit on that ark. But all those species didn't have to be on the ark. Obviously, the fish did not, right? Nor does he say that the, the, the tunicates or the echinoderms or the mollusks or the, I don't even know what these things are, the coelenterates or the sponges or the protozoans or most arthropods, most worms. He says simple subtraction brings the previously large number down to approximately 35,000 or 70,000 if you took male and female of each. And moreover, although we don't, we usually want to think of the big animals, we want to think of the elephants and the hippopotamuses and the giraffes. The vast majority of land animals in our world are smaller than a sheep. You can get 240 sheep comfortably in an average-sized two-deck railroad car. And the volume of the ark would have been equal to 569 such cars. And so if you just do some math, you can calculate it out, you find that the animals would have fit in approximately 50% of the ark's carrying capacity. There's plenty of room for people, food, water. They wanted a ping-pong table, there was room. They wanted a bowling alley, there was room. LaHaye and Morris in their book note this. They said, such simple calculations are certainly not beyond the abilities of the scoffers. What does seem to be beyond them is the willingness to try to see if the biblical story is feasible. So they would have fit. And then one last thing. A lot of people would say, I, I can accept that there was a flood. I can accept that there was a local flood, but not a global one. I, I just can't accept that. And a lot of people do struggle with that. And of course, we covered it already from Scripture. If you're going to believe Scripture, then you have to accept that it was a, a global flood. All flesh, every creepy thing, every man. It's very clear what the Bible says. 
But I just want to, I just want you to consider a recent example and see if it sheds some light on your thinking here. Just this week, Hurricane Michael slammed into the, uh, into the uh, panhandle of Florida. In a matter of hours, it had destroyed Panama City, caused massive flooding, major flooding of the area. Images online show houses almost completely underwater. Thursday evening as I was preparing for this sermon, I read that Michael had reached all the way inland to the Carolinas and was at that time still causing widespread flooding. Let me just read a little bit of one story, one news report. The small Gulf Coast community of Mexico Beach was known as a slice of old Florida. Now it lies in splinters. Hit head-on by Hurricane Michael, homes in this town of about 1,190 people were shattered or ripped from their foundations. Boats were tossed like toys. The streets closest to the water looked as if a bomb had gone off. What the nine-foot storm surge did not destroy, the 155-mile-per-hour winds finished off. And now rescuers and residents are struggling to get into the ground zero town to assess the damage and search for the hundreds of people believed to have stayed behind. Michelle McPherson and her ex-husband looked for the elderly mother of a friend on Thursday. The woman lived in a small cinder block house about 150 yards from the Gulf and thought she would be okay. Her home was reduced to crumbled cinder blocks and pieces of floor tile. Aggie, Aggie McPherson yelled. The only sound that came back was the echo from the half-demolished building pounding of the surf. Do you think her body would be here? Do you think it would have floated away, she asked. As she walked down the street, McPherson pointed out pieces of what had been the woman's house. That's the blade from her ceiling fan. That's her floor tile. Drone footage of Mexico Beach on Thursday morning showed a stunning landscape of devastation. Few structures were unscathed. John Humphreys, a storm chaser and drone pilot, arrived in Mexico Beach around 5 p.m. Wednesday A few hours after Michael slammed into the coastline, he had one word to describe what he saw. Apocalyptic. That was one localized storm in a matter of hours. Imagine the catastrophic rain of storms like that all over the globe. At the same time, for 40 days and 40 nights continuing. Why do we struggle to believe? Why is it so hard to believe that it would have been the entire world affected? Well, I'll stop. Why was there a flood? Because sin had to be judged. Why was there an ark? Because judgment on the sinning world could not be completed until believing Noah was safe. That ark that saved Noah is a picture of our Savior who saves us. Noah was safe because he was in the ark. And I and others here this morning who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are trusting in Jesus are safe because we are in him. So there's only one question. Are you? Are you in him? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story. Lord, we learned about it in Sunday school. We've thought about it. We see pictures of the ark. We could drive down to Kentucky and see a wonderful full-size model of it. So many things, but Lord, the truth of it is wonderful to consider. Lord God, we know sin has to be judged. We know that we're all sinners. And we know that the only solution to that is the ark, our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be in him, just as Noah needed to be in the ark. And just as Noah was absolutely and 100% and forever safe in that ark, 
No, no judgment for sin could touch him there. So too, Lord, we know that if we're in Jesus, we are safe. There is no condemnation. Lord, I pray if there's even one here today who hasn't figured that out, who doesn't know it for sure, who hasn't experienced it in their life, who has never come to the place where they've trusted Jesus, Lord, I pray they would this day. Pray they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Pray they would pray, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that sin has to be judged. And I know that the only solution is for me to be in Christ. And so, Lord, I, I want to be in Christ. Save my soul today, I pray. Forgive my sin today, I pray. Lord, if there's anybody who needs to pray that, may they do it, I pray. And, Lord, if there are Christians here who need to make any decisions this day, Maybe you just need to pray about something that's going on in their life. Lord, as we have our closing invitation song, I pray that whatever decisions need to be make, made or make are made and that you'll just help us, Father, to respond as you would have us to. In Jesus' name, amen.